Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. And let me assure you that whoever picked the title for this series did not ask me. I would love to think I'm going to talk to you about heavenly harmony. I haven't a clue about heavenly harmony. I really, really don't know. And I am totally convinced that the heavenly harmony when we get there is going to be so different from anything we have ever experienced here that I couldn't begin to get you ready for that. But I would like to talk about what we can do with music here. And I'd like to start by singing. And for that reason, I would encourage everybody except the three who are plugged into the wall back there. <clears throat> I understand. To get as close together as you feel like you can because we sing better when we're together. So move front, move in, move whatever. And we're going to start by singing the first thing on your handout. The handout begins, you will notice, with a page of synopsis and on the back of that's a little souvenir to take home. And the next thing after that is what? A hymn, I hope. When in our music, God is glorified. How many of you know this hymn? Wow. I get to teach everybody? Excellent. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cheat. I'm not going to play the music that's there. I'm going to play a different piece. But you're going to sing the words that are there. Okay? And I had to get permission even to duplicate just the words. But that's all right. I'm going to play a tune that I think most of you know. How many of you have ever sung For All the Saints? That's a little more familiar. All right. So we're going to sing these words to the tune For All the Saints. Believe it or not, they fit. It's the only other hymn in the book that they'll fit too. Let's try it. Let's pray, please. Father in heaven, there is no point in our spending time here if it is not in worship. And we worship with our minds as we learn, and we worship with our hearts, and we would worship with our voices also. We pray that what is done here will be done because you want it done, and that through us you will do well, that you will help us to know you better and to know how to serve you better. Thank you for this time that we get to spend talking together in Jesus' name. If you have come here to get answers about how church music ought to be run, I'm suggesting you turn your hand out in and go find another seminar. I can't tell you how church music ought to be run. Uh, what I really want to do is to get you to ask better questions. 
Because an awful lot of what happens in church music never got questioned in the first place. It just sort of fell into place. I know. I've been there. I've watched it. I've seen it happen. There are some answers that work for me. And I am, I hope, prepared to give you a reason for the beliefs that hold for me, that work for me, particularly about music and worship, since that's the context we're in. But if you are thinking that you're going to go home Sunday morning with all the church music issues resolved, all I can say is may the Holy Spirit guide you. I get no credit for anything that big, and I'm not going to try. Music is often called the universal language. It's not. It's not the universal language at all, because if it were, any piece of music anywhere in the world should be accessible to me, and I would understand it and know what it means. And it's not true. There are too many different musics. And there are many people in the world who don't know what my music says. It is not really a language in that sense at all. We borrow concepts from language when we talk about music, just like we borrow concepts from space when we talk about music and when we talk about time. But if we mean that the musical impulse is universal, then that's defensible. As far as we know, there has never been a culture on earth that did not have some kind of music. Historians have not found anybody that didn't have something musical in their circumstances. So in that sense, doing music, being musical, is probably universal and is probably species-specific. It's part of what makes us human. That's who we are. That's part of what makes us who we are. We don't know what the past music sounded like. Once the music has stopped, there's nothing left. Do you have, do you have any music in your hands there this morning? Shake your head this way, please. I know, I know. We call it the music. Is there any music going on in this room right now? No, no. And that stuff on the page, that's just black spots, okay? Reminders, we call them notes. You know what? When a speaker gets up front, he has notes. What are they for? To remind him what he's going to say. These notes are to remind you what you're going to sing. But they're not the music. The music was what happens when we do it. That's the experience that we need to be looking at. I have been fascinated to read how diligently evolutionists work to come up with a basis for music. Where did it come from? Why did the human race evolve music? I got bad news for them. The human race didn't evolve music. It's not the way it worked. Creationists don't have to worry about that problem. We know where music comes from. There is a God who loves beauty. And the God who loves beauty desires that everything that we experience in life partake of the same beauty that he enjoys. He knows and we know that in this earth with the sinful circumstances that we've brought upon ourselves, that it is not all beautiful. But that's not his fault. His job, among other things, is to restore the beauty. And we are grateful for it. My friend and erstwhile colleague Mel West we were speaking about a few moments ago, came fresh from a church board meeting one time. This was a long time back. Or a church planning session of some kind, I don't remember. And in a bit of a put-out mood, he said, the biggest wonder in heaven is going to be that when the angels announce the opening song, everybody's going to say it was a good choice. <laughs> yeah, probably. But I think there is a bigger wonder even back of that. And that is, why music? What makes people sing? What makes people dance? Why is music part of the human experience? What makes God sing? Does God sing? Do you have any evidence that God ever sings? There's one obscure text in Scripture, and I'm going to use it as the basis for my theology of music when I get around to writing it. Not that it'll be all built on that one, but I've got to start somewhere, right? Okay, I'm going to start there. He will rejoice over you with singing. Zechariah. Ooh. And I had to go to a friend of mine who is in the theology department, who knows biblical languages, and ask him, you know, is there something about the translation that I need to know? Is that really not quite accurate? No, I said, that's exactly what it says. He says, it's a strange text. I've pondered on it before, but it's, it, that's exactly what it says. The God sings. What makes God sing? 
What makes God sing is rejoicing over you. Isn't that cool? That's a blessing. For a number of years, I have been fond of these simple lines from the writer G.K. Chesterton. And my dear daughter, Ellen, knowing that I love these lines, wrote them up in a nice little calligraphy which I have sitting on my desk. Here dies another day during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me. And with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? There was a man who knew how to live with awe. And awe is something we lose out on really, really fast. What does awe mean to us? When I could open this thing up and poke ten buttons and talk to practically anybody in the world from right here. That's awesome. What is there left to be awed by? We do it every day. You go upstairs in the uh, foyer and you will find places where you can get internet access. You can learn anything you want to know about anybody you want to know. Right? So what is there to be awed by? We lose the capacity. A little bit of box about the same size will show me exactly where on the planet I am, including how far above sea level I am. I don't have a GPS yet. I'd like to play with one, but I haven't had a chance. How can it do that? Because it's talking to satellites up there in orbit. How far away you can't see them. Not a really good night, maybe, if you're lucky. If you're willing to spend the money, you can attach the speakers to your stereo without any wires. Put them anywhere you want in the room. Right? You've done that? Yeah? Okay, I won't ask how much money you spent. doesn't matter. In a meager effort to try to awaken that sense of awe, I want to start with an illustration from a very, very interesting read by Daniel Levitin. The back page of this handout, by the way, is a bibliography. And I'm going to stop just long enough to say about the handout. If, by any chance, you are not planning to stay through all six sessions, and that's okay, I'm not complaining if you don't. If you are not planning to stay through, please leave the handouts because most of the handout consists of hymns that we're going to sing this afternoon during sessions three and four. Okay? And if perchance you take them with you and I don't have enough for other people, I would be sorry if they couldn't sing. So, you're welcome to the handout. But if you're not planning to stay, I hope you'll at least let us have it long enough for the people to uh, sing this afternoon. All right, said that. The last two pages you have a handout. I included Daniel Levitin's book there. It's entitled, This is Your Brain on Music is the kind of a title that grabs my attention very, very fast. I'm going to offer two caveats before you decide you're going to run out and buy one of those, though. It's a good read. It's a fascinating read. But I have to tell you that his evolutionary foundation is so pervasive that it gets a little sticky after a while for a Christian to read. It just doesn't quite make sense. And number two, he draws very extensively from types of popular music that I think, by and large, the Christian ought not be terribly well acquainted with. But that's my two cents worth. Otherwise, it's a good book. Anyway, here it goes. Imagine you are inside a chamber, roughly the size, let's say, of a typical elevator. In a room, doesn't matter where the, where the door is, it's behind you probably, and in the wall in front of you, there's a window, let's say 20 inches in diameter, round circle cut out. Okay, with me? Fascinating to see how your imagination can work. And across that window, there is stretched a piece of cloth, think sheet, Pillowcase, something of that sort, okay? Just a piece of white cloth stretched across that window. On the other side of that window, outside your room, there is an unknown number of people, each of whom has an unknown number of ping pong balls, and is standing, you don't know where, with, rega with regard to that window, how far away they are, at what angle they are. The only thing you have to go by is what you see when the ping-pong balls they throw hit the window. That's your link to what's outside. And they may throw any time they want to. They don't have to throw all the time. Or they may not throw any. Or they may throw all their, all their ping-pong balls at once. And you watch and you see the ping-pong balls hitting on that little 20-inch window covered with, with sheet. And your job is to figure out how many people there are, how far away they are, how many balls each one has, and what angle they are with relation to the window. Come on. Really? I don't think so. And yet that is what happens when you listen. If you were to close your eyes right now so you couldn't lip read, if any of you can lip read, I can't. The only point of contact between me and you is molecules of air banging up against your eardrum. 
That's it. There's nothing else. And by means of that, we communicate. Now, this window in your eardrum, can you show me with your fingers about how big three-eighths of an inch is? Estimate for yourself about how big is three-eighths of an inch, okay? Make a circle that big. That's your eardrum. That's that 20-inch window, okay? And what happens is these molecules come bouncing against that little three-eighths inch diameter window, and you figure out what's going on on the other side. Wow. So what was the first instrument you heard? Good shot. Almost right, even. English horn. How many of you would for sure know an English horn if you saw one? I kind of thought maybe so. Well, it looks a lot like an oboe. The big difference is down near the bottom, it's got this little bell, bulbous sort of thing down there. Changes the color quite a bit. It's a little bit longer, okay? But it's an alto oboe. Same, Same idea. What else came in? Yeah, cello, that's good enough, string family. And then clarinet. How'd you know all that? You didn't see them. That's amazing. Fascinating. So what's that one? Flute? Yeah, I thought we wouldn't have much trouble with that. Piece of cake, right? Not hard, that one. Piano and quite a few other things, yeah? Can you imagine how your eardrums are bouncing at this point? It's very complicated. You try to make a single waveform out of all of the sounds that are going on at once, and that single waveform tells you the instruments as well as the notes. This is awesome. This is totally amazing. Take care of that one in a minute. Eardrum that big. I know, you've got two of them, but still. Eardrum's that big. And everything that comes in and bounces off that eardrum, as it were, gets reduced down to something smaller yet. You happen to have a dime in your pocket, haul it out, and take a look at the words, In God We Trust. You've got a pretty good idea if you haven't got the dime, Okay. Right there in front of the president, there are the words, In God We Trust. You look at the part that says, In God. It's very small type. And the in God is approximately the same size as the foot of the stapes. Now, that's what goes on into the inner window, inner, inner ear, sits in the oval window in your ear. So all of that sound not only comes through that window, it comes through that window. And you can still perceive all of this stuff we've been talking about. How does that work? What else is amazing is that you can't do anything about it. You don't have ear flaps. I recall coming back with the orchestra on a tour bus on a late Saturday night, and somebody had along a DVD they wanted to watch. 
Unfortunately, our bus is equipped so that can be done. Sorry. And so they put the DVD on, and I wasn't much interested in what was going on. And so I shut my eyes and tried to sleep. You know what? I could shut out what I was, would have been looking at. There was no way I could shut out the sound. Had a little tiff with my wife over that one, shouldn't admit it, because I finally gave up and watched the movie, and she was upset because it wasn't worth watching, and she's right. And I had to say, I'm sorry, but unfortunately, what I was hearing with my ears was rousing pictures in my mind that were worse than the ones on the screen. Sorry. You can't stop the sound. It's like secondhand smoke. If it's in the air, you're going to breathe it. If the sound is in the air, you're going to hear it. Period. That's it. And you're going to hear it seven days a week, 365 days a year for three score and ten assuming you don't lose too much of it toward the end. And it is there all during the time when you are asleep, when your vision isn't doing a thing for you. It is, when your taste isn't doing anything for you, your touch has finally reconciled itself to the pressure of the sheets. But that silent sentinel of the ear is still on duty, and if the power transformer across the street blows out, you'll know it. By one of two things, either you'll hear the explosion itself, or your air conditioner will stop going, and yet the silence will bother your ear. Yeah? Yeah? It will. It will disrupt your slumbers, and depending on what it's like, it will maybe make you a little nervous about what's going on outside. An amazing thing, this ear. Well, then, what about the music that's heard in the daytime? How does that get through? How does that work? What does it do to us? There was a symposium in the early 90s my wife and I went to up in Chicago, entitled Music and the Brain. And it was totally astonishing. For three days, we sat in this one auditorium, and every 30 minutes, somebody new would get up and start telling us all the results of the research of his 30 years of, of labor. And, and then they'd have to drag him off the stage, so the next one would come up, and it was just since uh, information overload, you know, these amazing things. But they had PET scans there of people doing various things. PET scan of somebody doing a crossword puzzle. There's a corner over here in the language area that's all lit up because there's a lot of activity going on there. PET scan of somebody playing chess. Oh, there's a corner over here working on how to do chess. PET scan of somebody reading a book. Okay, that's fairly straightforward. And then they would do a PET scan of somebody who was doing music. Where do you think the music center is? All the way around. Let me read it to you from Leviton. This is fun. Listening to music starts with subcortical structures, that is, structures below the cortex, the cochlear nuclei, the brain stem, the cerebellum, and then moves up to auditory cortices on both sides of the brain. Trying to follow along with music that you know, or at least in a style that you're familiar with, recruits additional regions of the brain, including the hippocampus, which is the memory center, and subsections of the frontal lobe, particularly a region called the inferior frontal cortex, which is in the lowest part of the frontal lobe, that is closer to your chin than the top of your head. I didn't know I had brain down. Oh, never mind. Tapping along with the music, whether you actually do it or just in your mind, involves the cerebellum and its timing circuits. Performing music, regardless of what instrument you play or sing or conduct, involves the frontal lobes again for planning your behavior, the motor cortex in the posterior part of the frontal lobe just underneath the top of your head, and the sensory cortex, which provides the tactile feedback that you did press the right key on your instrument or move the baton where you thought you were. Reading music involves the visual cortex in the back of your head in the occipital lobe. Listening to or thinking about the lyrics involves language centers, including Brokaw's and Wernicke's area, as well as other language centers in the temporal and frontal lobes. That's what's going on when you're doing music, folks. Isn't that marvelous? And I notice he didn't say anything about the social interactions that go on when we sing in the choir together. <laughs> or do string quartets together. Nor did he talk about the emotions that we actually sense that are inspired in us when the music happens. Those add on the cerebellar vermis and the amygdala. We are talking about a whole brain activity. Everything's going. And the whole brain consists of 100 billion neurons. It's a big number, by the way. 100 billion neurons, each of which is connected to anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 other neurons. So how many connections are there? Wow. So what is music? I went to my Google online Merriam-Webster dictionary, same like you could do, 
And the dictionary tells me that music is the science or art of ordering tones or sounds in succession, in combination, and in temporal relationships to produce a composition having unity and continuity. Yeah, it's pretty involved, but it's also fairly accurate. In our Western culture, we've grown up experiencing music which has three primary elements, maybe a fourth. First one I'm going to talk about is harmony. You all know what we mean by harmony? Of course you do. What's harmony? Good. I thought so, probably. All right, what am I looking for? Number five, let's do it. Any harmony there? No, no harmony there. So it's possible to have music without harmony? Well, I guess we'll just skip that one, right? No, not entirely. If there is harmony, it may be just one other voice going. As long as you have two voices going, two notes at a time, you've got harmony. You may have a whole lot more than that. We listened to that first example. The English horn played for a while, and pretty soon the cello came in. Okay, now you've got harmony. And the clarinet comes in, now you've got three-part harmony. It may range all the way up to very, very many parts. This particular example starts off fairly sparse, but gets thicker. This particular example, as a matter of fact, is written for eight five-voice choirs. Forty parts. It's a challenge for any composer. They suspect this was written for the Queen's 40th birthday. We're not sure. But it just gets thicker and thicker. up to that one in a minute. Harmony is a factor in Western music. It is not a factor in most Eastern musics. There are many cultures that do not have harmony at all, certainly not in the sense that we think of it. It is, in certain respects, like perspective in art. Many of the Eastern arts do not have the sense of depth that we think of in Western painting, and the harmony is kind of analogous to that. By definition, the sound produced by the simultaneous sounding of two or more pitches. I don't think I need to get more detail than that. So what do we have if we don't have harmony? Melody. Melody. Aha. So what is melody? The successive sounding of single pitches, Okay, one after the other. And it's much harder for us to imagine music that doesn't have melody. But the definition says that music is supposed to be organized in such a way that the whole is perceived as a coherent sound, that it has continuity, that it has unity. And I would like you to notice in this example how, uh, I think I may play along on the piano with this one, how each wave, as it were, of the melody goes to a higher pitch by one than the one we just had, and it builds all the way up to a climax and then ebbs back very much the same way. One of the nicest developed melodies that I happen to know of. Let's try it.
I'm sorry, I should still be there. Now we come down to the C. gorgeous love the way that was put together but you notice how there's a lot of harmony in that also and the harmony becomes the resource from which the melody draws the interaction between the two is almost indistinguishable melody of course is the tune that's the part we go home whistling the, 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 the easy part to remember as I heard twice this morning da, 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 yeah, that part okay we listen to Victim I Pascali which is a gorgeous plain song So then I have to ask a question. Can all the notes of a single harmony be heard at once? Okay, yeah. That's the definition of harmony. It's what you hear all at once, okay? Can all the notes of a melody be heard at once? No. That means there must be the passing of time. And the time factor in music is called... Rhythm. Rhythm. Can there be music without harmony? Yes. Can there be music without melody? Thank you. Thank you for playing. Um, I, have to pr- I have to try to prove you wrong. Can there be music without rhythm? No. Not at all. Not possible. Cannot be, because music... Because rhythm is all of the time aspects of music, and music only exists in time. But could we get rid of melody? I submit that we can, and I'm going to offer as an example this one. You want to sing me the tune? You can't even define harmony for me. Is it music? Yeah? Yeah, I, I could stretch my definition far enough, okay? I think most of you could too. Far enough. Far enough, you got the point. But I have talked to you about one other example. In a sense, music is a way to make time audible. Now, you could argue with me that listening to the ticking of the clock does the same thing. Yeah, but it's not much fun. Especially when I have two clocks in my studio, and they don't quite tick at the same time. And my students would rather neither of them was ticking anyway, because it upsets their sense playing the piano. Okay. Not much fun in listening to the clock tick. But music which consists solely of rhythm has the capacity to depict and disarm even an amazing amount of emotion. Most of you remember where you were when you heard about airplanes flying into the New York Center, Trade Center. Yeah? It was stunning. My wife came to my studio at school and told me what had happened, and I simply didn't believe her. It was like an idiot talking to me, and I, she's not an idiot anyway. I, I, there, was no, there was nothing to relate to. It didn't make sense. It was incomprehensible. By the same token, I can tell you, and most of you don't have to worry about this one, I can tell you where I was when I found out that John Kennedy had been shot. 1963, November 22. Few of you can remember that. But I remember also what happened the next few days. I was at Hinsdale at the time. And I remember they brought in the biggest television they could find, which was by no means a 60-inch plasma, believe me. 
1963, they had a big TV set up in the lobby at Hinsdale Stand, and those who were coming and going could stop and watch what was going on, especially the morning of the funeral. Somebody else was observing the morning of the funeral. And what I remember the most about that experience was after the funeral, the long procession out to Arlington, and all the way out there, the only sound to be heard was what? Anybody remember? Anybody know? The military death march. I have tried for 30 years to get a sound clip that would let me play the military death march, and it's not there. I can't find it anywhere. So I tried to make one with my synthesizer, and I realized the farther I went, the worse it got. So I'm going to give you what I usually do, which is my own fake version, okay? And you will have to recognize that I cannot do it anything like justice, but I will try. The death march is played on one drum, muffled. So you have to think now snare drum. All of you can think snare drum in your head? No problem? Okay. Muffled. That is with a piece of cloth laid on it so that its sound is uh, duller than it would be otherwise. And this, approximately, because I can't do a good roll, is approximately what we heard. three hours. And the only interruption to it was when some poor announcer who was being paid on the television felt obliged to not allow dead air to go by, and so she would say something brilliant like, they're turning on to 15th Avenue. And America wanted to say, shut up! Let me grieve! Let me process! Let me experience this thing! And it was an overwhelming thing. It was very, very powerful. And that music, which you can't sing the tune to and you won't go home whistling either, that music helped to heal America. I kid you not. Music has to have rhythm. There is no such thing as music without rhythm. I have wondered more than once how human experience would be diminished if music just disappeared. All gone. No more music. I know there are some people on my campus who, without their earbuds, would have some kind of withdrawal symptoms, at least. And I'm, as long as I'm talking about earbuds, please keep the volume down. We talked about the size of that window in there. As long as there's a speaker up here somewhere, I don't even know where the speaker is, wherever it is. As long as there's a speaker up here, there's a lot of distance between you and it. And its energy is being dispersed this way. And the amount that actually gets in here isn't much. But if you start the source right here, how many cubic centimeters of air are you having to move? Not many. And it doesn't take much to get too much to the eardrum. Southern's Orchestra went to Greece one year. And when you're on a tour like that, you kind of go where you're told to go because that's where the next activity is or the next food is or whatever. And for the last night, they took us to what is called a taverna. And yeah, sure enough, it's pretty close to what you think it was. Because that's where supper was. And we had supper. And the man who was doing the taverna show was very, very good. And it was interesting until we got down to the belly dancers, at which point we decided we'd probably had enough and went somewhere else. But what I recall out of that experience was that after about 20 minutes of the main show going on, somebody turned the volume up in the room to where it was almost painful. And I wondered why they did. And I was stupid because I knew perfectly well if I'd stopped to think. Nobody did anything to the volume. You know what protects your ear? 
You know what protects your inner ear from damage? The smallest muscle in your body. How long can I do this? Four minutes, five, six, maybe eight. This isn't very heavy. Eight minutes, okay. What are the size of the muscles that are holding it? Fairly good, yeah. I work on them some, okay. <laughs> How big is the muscle that protects your ear? Don't bother with the three-eighths. Eighth of an inch, three-sixteenths maybe. Long, not across, long. Imagine if it's a normal muscle shape, how skinny it is. That's the muscle that protects your ear. How long is that muscle going to stay contracted before it wears out? About 20 minutes. Okay? What happened was they didn't turn the volume up. What happened was my poor little muscle that was trying to protect my ear gave up. And everything that came in was louder now. And there was possibility of doing damage inside. It ain't much muscle, folks. Don't overwork it. Calm those earbuds down a bit. Okay, that's a side, but it's a necessary one. Suppose we had church without any music. I've even suggested that a time or two, when there have been enough disputes about what ought to be. I said, let's just do without for a month, and then see what we come back to. Nobody's ever taken me up on it. During the year I was doing my master's degree, I directed the church choir at Hinsdale, Illinois. And... Let's, let's just say it was not a total success, okay? I was uh, a graduate student. I thought I knew yeah, how to do things. The previous director had always had uh, church choir potluck, Sabbath afternoon, then after they'd all had potluck, they'd practice for an hour and a half or so and getting ready for the next week's church. I didn't think you ought to be doing the Lord's practice work on Sabbath. It's not what Sabbath is for. So I said, no, we're going to have rehearsals on Wednesday nights. We did. First week we had, I don't know, 20 people, 25 maybe. In about a month we were down to 15 maybe. Along about January and February we had 13 people that I could count on. On a church of 700 people. So I finally went to the church board and I said, look, this is not being terribly successful. I'm, I'm, I still believe, as I believed before, that we ought to do the rehearsing sometime other than Sabbath. But I said, you know, you're, we're not getting a whole lot out of it. Suppose we just disband choir for the rest of the year. I'll be gone. I'm going somewhere else. The next guy can do what he wants to do. You know, let's just, let's just take a vacation. On the church board was a gentleman named Joseph Crianza, who was the dean of the School of Music at Roosevelt University, downtown Chicago, which was not where I was going to school, but I knew him. His daughter Kathleen was one of the most faithful members I had. Sweet girl. And in the course of the discussion, I remember Dr. Crianza getting the floor, and he said, when my daughter comes downstairs in the morning, I can make her wash the dishes. I can make her sweep the floor. I cannot make her sing. Why do people sing? Why does God sing? Because he has something to sing about. And we don't sing if we don't have something to sing about. And I have wondered about what music really does mean to us, particularly when I downloaded from the Internet some documents describing Australia during its early years. You know anything about early Australia? What was its function? That's where England sent all its convicts to get rid of them. So it was a penal colony. And life in Australia in those early years was incredibly brutal. Among other things, one could be given a hundred lashes for owning a piece of paper. One could be given a hundred lashes for smiling while on work detail. One could be given a hundred lashes for singing. Would you sing? Is there something inside us that needs singing that badly? I had to wonder. There's a wonderful story about the cellist of Sarajevo, which I like to read in full detail to my classes. I didn't bring the whole story this morning. It would take a little too long. But I'll tell you briefly. During the war, this cellist who had been principal cellist of the Sarajevo Opera, which is obviously a high-cultured position, very dignified man, into music, happened to be observing when a shell landed in the line, the queue outside a bakery that still happened to have a little flower. 
And immediately 20 people were splattered all over the sidewalks and the walls nearby and whatever. And that incident was his breaking point. He couldn't take it anymore. So what did he do? The next afternoon at 4 o'clock, he dressed up in his white tie and tails, took a little camp stool and went out and set his stool in the middle of the crater that bomb had made and sat down to play his cello on the street. He had no idea who was listening, whether anybody was listening. People that were listening were listening from barred windows and shuttered windows, hiding in the basement. But he played. He played a whole concert. The next day he did it again. The next day he did it again. Some kind of an inner defiance that had to call for civilization, for decency, for responsibility in the midst of this incredible chaos. And he played apparently protected because the war was all around him. Bullets were flying in every direction. And yet he went out and he played and he sat and he played even, even to the point where his cello was destroyed. Why do people make music? How much does music mean to us? How important should it be? I'm going to sidestep a little bit right now because... There's an aspect I want to touch on briefly before we move on to the next session. Not infrequently when I teach music in the Christian church, I'll have a student ask me, shouldn't there be a typical Adventist music? Shouldn't there be something identifiably us? And that's a good question. I have thought it before. Actually, there are not very many groups that can actually claim that kind of a personalized sound. One group would be the Old Order Amish. The Amish sing from a hymn book called the Ausbund, which has been in continuous use for over 400 years. That's a record. Same book. Same book. I learned a little more about the Ausbund before I came here. They have guarded this heritage for a long time. It's three times as old as our denomination is. The original book dates from 1564. It contains only words, which is true of many hymnals. Tunes are extra. They were song, These 51 core songs, which are the ones that were in that original book, these 51 songs lean very heavily, not surprisingly, toward the suffering church in a hostile environment. You wonder why? Because half of those songs were composed in the dungeon of Passau Castle. At least one of the authors did not survive his imprisonment. Later editions have had as many as 140 songs. But I can't give you any illustrations of Amish music because I haven't been to their meetings and there are no recordings. It's not for public consumption. That's what their church has. That is sacred to them in a very real sense. There is a belief community that does have a very recognizable style known as the Moravians. The Moravians were an interesting group and the sound of their music grows very much out of 18th century classicism the time of Mozart and Haydn. The sound is very similar to that. Their culture has continually encouraged music, made it a very real, vital cultural force. And we will see in a later talk that it was the Moravian brethren who actually led the Wesley brothers to their real conversion experience, hence Methodism. And singing played an important part. I don't think I've got this in the notes down the road, so I'll tell you now. Did you know the Wesleys came to America? John and Charles Wesley? Founders of Methodism, British, came to the uh, coast of Georgia and preached for three or four years there. John did. But on the way here, the ship they were on ran into a humongous storm of a nature that nobody was sure they would come all the rest of the way on over. And yet in the midst of this storm, the Wesley brothers heard the Moravians, of whom there were 40 or 50 on the boat, singing. And it blew him away. He couldn't fathom how in the middle of this storm they could be so calm and so assured as to be singing. And so he went and talked to them. And they said, we're not afraid of dying. That's not a problem. Our lives are in God's hands. We will praise him as long as we have breath. And the Wesleys said, tell me about this. 
John Wesley was so impressed that he asked for lessons, German lessons, because he didn't know German. And they started teaching him German on the way so he could translate some of these wonderful German Moravian hymns in English and use them himself. After they went back to England, he and Charles experienced their own real conversion. The Methodism, of course, is the result in a lot of history since then. The Moravians have their own distinct style. It's very recognizable if you happen to know it. Problem is you've probably never heard it, and you're not likely to. It's a very esoteric, limited sort of style. But whenever there is something playing that is by one of the Moravians, I have a pretty good guess where it comes from. The common heritage of hymns that we have really doesn't have distinctions of that sort. It would be very, very difficult. I'd say it would be impossible if I just sat down and started playing through the hymnal, one after the other, for you to tell me whether it was a Baptist or an Episcopalian or a Presbyterian that wrote the the tune. No way. You're not going to know. And that's not a serious problem, I don't think. The high liturgical churches will probably sing those same tunes a good bit more slowly than we do. And the Baptists will probably accompany them with more flourishes and filigrees all over the piano than we do. But the notion of a Christian hymn is pretty much a style of its own. The best we as a church have managed so far is something called an SDA philosophy of music. Notice philosophy, not theology. I'll touch on that again later. We have some good, well-grounded guidelines, and I am very much thankful to those who took the time and put the effort into establishing that much. I understand from those who were on the committee that it was not easy to get even that far. Dr. Bakayoki, in his book, The Christian Rock Music, which I think is the first one in the bibliography, if you don't know this book, it's worth getting to know, says, and he's offering, and I quote, a first feeble attempt to address a most important subject which has been largely ignored, that is, a theology of music. The author, he said, is not aware of any significant study produced by Adventist scholars who examine church music in the context of a distinctive Adventist beliefs. But even if that study were done, I submit that the differences would not be musical nearly so much as they would be verbal. Content. And that we should have a distinct content. Do we? Well, I guess the place to find out would be in the hymnal, wouldn't it? What's in the hymnal? Come back this afternoon, we're going to find out a lot of what's in the hymnal. But if the hymnal doesn't represent our denomination fairly, then we ought to just give up and save the expense of printing it, use the Methodist hymnal, and skip the ones we don't like. Right? It would make more sense. I mean, it's expensive putting out a hymn book. You know how expensive? I'll give you a little clue. A little clue. I have one item in the church hymnal. Few of you knew that. Most of you doesn't matter anyway. That's okay. But I get royalties on that. Not enough to retire on. Every 30 or so, no, it's, it's, I think it's about every 18 hymnals that gets sold, that gets sold, I get a penny. Big deal. Okay? Since the hymnal came out, I've probably taken close to $2,600. It's spread over quite a few years, but it's been probably somewhere around 26, I'd have added up, $26, $2,700. That's for, at a penny for every 18, and each one of those was sold for $12.95 or $13.95 or $14.95. It's a lot of money, people. I was grateful the College Dale Church just replaced all their hymnals last year. Oh, never mind. And my students in Christian church class, when I insist that they buy one, are ready to tell me, the hell the dean, this is conflict of interest, you know. I'd make a penny and a half off my class. But it is expensive. And there are denominations that say they need a new hymnal every 20 years. That's just routine. They expect a new hymnal out every 20 years. We haven't done that. It's been a good deal longer than that since the last one. It's going to be a little while yet before we get another one. But if we're looking for the Adventist contribution, it's going to be in terms of the text. What do you expect to find in an Adventist hymnal? What should the hymns be about? Well, a lot of the hymns are going to be about the same things everybody else is singing about. The sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, the faithfulness of God. We have no corner on that, right? The incarnation of the Son of God, peace and hope and comfort in the Christian life. This is all standard shared material and should be shared. Some of our doctrines uh, aren't emphasized as much as they used to be, though. 
If you take the current hymnal and look in the topical index under death, you will be referred to the section called Hope and Comfort. In that section, there are 14 hymns listed, not a one of which says anything about our understanding of what happens when a person dies. Not a word. Or you will be sent to the section called Eternal Life, which has 24 hymns, all of which talk about what happens after the resurrection. And the resurrection is a dumb doctrine if we aren't asleep first. But it doesn't talk anything about the soul sleep in death. It's interesting that when hymns and tunes came out as the official SDA hymnal back in the late 1800s, there were no fewer than 59 hymns about death. The subject was a lot more current in some respects back then. My father's mother was one of five children, possibly six, we're not certain by the records, born to her parents, only two of whom grew up. Death was there all the time. Johann Sebastian Bach, a hundred years before that, went through a period of five years in which there was only one year that he didn't lay one of his children away. And people wanted to deal with it. They had to have a death march, if you please, something to help them over the hump. We don't talk about death anymore. We do our best to just kind of let it go. And we certainly don't sing hymns at funerals, right? Interesting. Interesting. And I would like to suggest one thing more. And this is going to sound like sour grapes, and I don't mean it to be. And I can only quit in three minutes, so I can't talk long, can I? If we're going to have an Adventist hymn book, I would like to think that the Adventist contributors might be worthy of our notice. I already told you I have one there, so I'm not messing with mine. I've, I know several people have sung mine. I'm happy. It's okay. But I want to tell you about, as an example, Harold A. Miller. Harold A. Miller was a significant man in Adventist music education. For 37 years, he served the church at Mount Vernon Academy, at CUC, which was then Washington Missionary College, which is the one my dad graduated from, SAU, which was then Southern Junior College, Union College, and Pacific Union College. In fact, the choral rehearsal room at Southern is named the Harold Miller Rehearsal Room. And there's a picture of him beside the door. The companion to the hymnal says that of his more than 200 published hymns and songs, there were 10 in the 1941 church hymnal, which is true. I checked that out. The 1941 hymnal is the one I grew up with, the old church hymnal. But because a survey of pastors revealed that they were being used very little, all were deleted by the committee working on the present hymnal. Does it make any difference whether or not they were good melodies? Or does the church somehow just assume that a prophet from your own country doesn't know what he's doing? It's too easy that way. Or was it simply that those hymns introduced in 1941 were new and would have taken an effort to get to know? And we didn't want to put forth the effort. As a matter of fact, as a professional musician, I'm willing to tell you that all of them were decently well written. And I will tell you that three of them are really, really good hymns that ought to be in our common vocabulary. One of them with a text, by the way, by Francis Scott Key, same man that wrote Star Spangled Banner. Hymn text by him, music by Miller. An absolutely marvelous hymn. You'll never get to know it because you don't know the book. I would like to just invite you to do your part to validate the work of the present Adventist contributors to the present hymnal by first discovering and then learning, and finally using their hymns. I'm not interested in reverse discrimination. I just would like fair treatment. You say, how do I know which ones are by Adventists? Good question. Anybody know the answer to that real quick? Buy a copy of the companion to the SDA hymnal. There's a nice big list in the back. All right, I'm going to stop at that point because the clock says I'm supposed to. We're back here in 15 minutes. We're going to proceed. Thank you very much. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.